substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to 1 of 200, the independent media and politics podcast We've got a fantastic lineup for you and a couple of topics in our midweek episode this week. Last week, we were joined by Susie Wiles and Peter Kelly to talk about the ongoing COVID pandemic. We're doing a bit of a whirlwind tour of the big uh, bad things in the world uh, over the uh, over these couple of weeks. And this week, we haven't covered it in a long time, and that's been pretty remiss of us. We're back onto some climate uh, discussion. I'm joined by, oh, in what capacity <laughs> are you joining us? Uh, Mandy Hank, welcome on. Kia ora. So I'm the CEO of Tohotoha Aotearoa Commons. We're an NGO that does a variety of work. Uh, we cover artificial intelligence, which we've actually been working on since 2019. Um, and what we really look at there is sort of the power imbalances and the implications, particularly when governments use it. And of course, now that generative AI is a thing, what kind of impact that's having on people like students and artists um, and others who are sort of at the, the sharp end of the stick with these Silicon Valley technologies. Uh, we also work on myths and disinformation, uh, and we do work around public access to knowledge. Fantastic. And we're also joined by Byron Clark. Welcome back. You're all right. Thanks for having me back. Just for our audience uh, who maybe haven't heard from you in a while, mm. at least on our podcast, uh, where do you come from this? Yeah, so so some, some listeners will be familiar with uh, my work on the far right, um, published the book Fear, New Zealand's Hostile Underworld of Extremists uh, just over a year ago. Um, since then, I've pivoted a little bit to looking at disinformation more broadly with a particular focus on climate change disinformation. Uh, recently received a grant from the Bruce Jessen Foundation to write a short series of articles on this topic. Uh, first one was looking at the conspiracy theories around the 15-minute city, and that was published in the spin-off recently. Um, and that look into climate change disinfo has been what's brought me into uh, doing this project with Toha Toha. We'll get into what that project uh, entails uh, later in the podcast, I think. But I really want to get into a conversation around the way that climate change disinformation acts, is acts the right word, or uh, shows up in the world that kind of puts that at odds with some of the other disinfo out there, at least in terms of the way that the discourse around disinformation and misinformation uh, has developed over the last few years. I guess for our listeners as well, climate is something that has like a long history of this stuff. You know, we're, we're talking going back decades and decades when we're talking about climate disinformation, as opposed to some of the things that people might be more uh, familiar with these days, like around the COVID pandemic, for example. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The situation with climate has spanned a far enough period of time that it really goes back to the 1950s. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, researchers came out with a new study showing that the oil companies knew as far back as I think it was 1954, um, they were funding research on climate change and starting to explore it. So 
the sort of model for climate disinfo really has its roots in oil companies and fossil fuel interests doing whatever they could do to protect their right to continue drilling uh, and continue emitting. I think that at this point, the situation is substantially more complex, um, but its its roots are way back there in the sort of middle of the previous century. I guess I'd add to that that in addition to uh, the fossil fuel industry, I mean, one uh, more Aotearoa-specific industry that has been engaging in some disinformation around climate change is sectors of agriculture, which is a, a big emitter here. Uh, so one thing that we'll be looking at um, as a, a case study in this course um, will be how Groundswell has promoted misinformation and disinformation on the impact of methane, you know, including having a, a tour by a, one of these uh, dissident scientists who disagrees with the scientific consensus on methane and, and how they um, sponsored this person to come to New Zealand and then through doing that, we were able to get him into you know, alternative media like Reality Check Radio, but also you know make a bit of impact in mainstream media as well. They really love to call themselves things like dissident, don't they? <laughs> well, I don't know if he self-identifies as that. I'm just trying to find a term to uh, <laughs> point out that, yes, he is a, a scientist, but he, he is way out of step with the majority of his colleagues on this issue. Yeah. I think for a lot of this stuff, um, maybe as opposed to maybe some of the, um, I'd just say bad information uh, around uh, geopolitical issues, the climate information space has been pretty settled for a, a long time and it's taken like very very coordinated um highly resourced systems in order to establish it um, and then have these branches that we're seeing today uh in organizations like groundswell that's okay the oil companies have the money to fund it we don't <laughs> need to worry that they're gonna um overspend their budgets for propaganda <laughs> But yeah, I think that they have seen climate activism, government sort of making moves to do what is, is obviously and plainly necessary to do as an enormous direct threat. And so the ways in which they have marshaled their resources, um, gathered sort of folks who will promote their message, designed narratives, done the work to get those narratives into the conversation, is is just deeply deeply impressive um and also like super villain-esque to be perfectly honest so i mean we've also been aware that these systems of information and, and disinformation have have been created uh by polluters or you know different barons of industry uh but why hasn't that mattered well, I think that what you just said there, when you said we have been, who the heck is we? I think that the reality is, is that in order for us to make the changes that, that absolutely must be made, the amount of political power and mobilization necessary to put pressure on, you know, well-meaning, presumably influenceable governments is is really quite enormous. And for a long time, probably too much of the conversation around climate change was based really heavily on scientific information. In an earlier part of my career, I published a book for the American Library Association's press on climate change in libraries. And what 
sort of looking back on that experience, I think is really interesting was I felt like I had to begin that book with a fairly detailed explanation of the science. Uh, because 10 years ago, that was still very much where the conversation was. People were denying the science. People were denying the implications of the science. Um, a woman named Kari Norgard has written uh, an absolutely wonderful book called Living in Denial that I think was really influential on the way that I approach thinking about climate change. And one of the things she talks about is implicatory denial, where we don't really deny the science, but instead we deny the implications of what the science means. And I think it's only been in the sort of past decade or so that we've really made that transition where we're not having arguments about things like ECS and um, exactly what emissions are and the question of like emissions versus concentrations. And instead we're like, oh, okay, this is real. This is human caused. Uh, and it means that we have to do things in a very different way than the way that we've been doing them. So I think that as the conversation has evolved though, the deniers have um, really been marginalized within the conversation and the propaganda is now really hitting elsewhere uh, within the climate discourses. Yeah, I'm trying to put that all together and, and just think about the last decade and that shift from, and I, I think even in the last two or three years when we've been covering on one of 200, we've talked about the shift in the New Zealand political landscape away from um, climate change isn't real to, oh, but we can just mitigate it. You know, um, human technology will will be able to overcome it. Uh, yes, these things are happening and, and it's man-made, but that means it could be man undone. Um, and I think even in the last election campaign, uh, when the ACT Party predominantly, but I think National dipped into it a bit again when they were uh, electorally facing farmers were saying things like, oh, we don't need to fund bringing emissions down. We just need to fund building up the riverbanks kind of uh, rhetoric, which is just patently, like, not true. That is a very clear, I guess, well, I don't even know how to describe the different ways in which the, these work argumentatively. Like, it's a, a pressure valve uh, to allow people to turn away from some of the stuff the science is saying with the illusion that they're still working towards some kind of solution? I think so. I mean, I have um, a sort of framework that I use when thinking about and talking about denial um, and sort of talking about climate disinformation. The way that I sort of tend to think about it as, is you have your sort of first big break at the, is climate change real, human caused and serious? And the folks who end up answering no to that are largely marginal these days. Um, there was a study that came out, I think it was last week, actually, 85% of people now believe in climate change. So we are well past the point where we need to convince people that this is real. And I think we're well past the point where it is considered sort of effective um, disinformation or propaganda to argue that climate change isn't real, right? We, that, that ship has unfortunately sailed, which is just a terrible sign about how unsuccessful we've been over the past 30 years. So, but once you get to that question, I think the next sort of big split within the discourse and within the community itself is the, 
can climate change be solved within existing relations of production and power? And for folks who say yes to that, um, I think you see sort of a further division when you get to the question of can the market and technology do it with limited regulation, right? And the folks who answer yes to that are, are techno-optimists. And I think by and large, techno-optimists are um, pretty successful at pushing propaganda out that serves their message. Uh, and I think that people who are genuine techno-optimists are very, very vulnerable to that kind of disinformation. Um, on the other side of it, for folks who say, no, you can't do it without limited or with limited regulation, you need heavy regulation and you need subsidies. Um, I call them regulation optimists. Uh, and I think that's probably where the mainstream of climate discourse is right now, actually. Um, this is even where James Shaw, like, uh the current co-leader of the Greens um, and climate minister under a couple of governments um, would fit into this this area. And yeah, he's absolutely. considered pretty progressive. Yeah, and I think that, like, I don't really want to set sort of a normative value on these particular divisions, but it's a really useful and valuable way of looking at where their disinformation vulnerabilities are because all of these groups are going to be targeted by fossil fuel interests. Um, and that includes like, you know, places like Russia that have a strong interest in the continued production of fossil fuels. Uh, and it, it also includes American interests as well. What? <laughs> I know it's a shocker, uh, but it turns out that the United States actually produces like some fossil fuels. I think they export them is what I heard. But yeah, so those regulation subsidy optimists are really vulnerable to arguments about the technology and sort of what technology can do in ways that sort of some other groups in this framework are not. Do you want me to keep going with the framework? I would I would love to hear more about the framework. <laughs> because, yeah, this is what I mean when I was saying I'm, I'm not sure how to unpack exactly what uh, specific subset of the electorate um, or decision makers uh, these uh, specific disinformation threads they're trying to target. Because to someone who is like, climate change is bad and so is capitalism, and it's very difficult sometimes to understand why people are struggling uh, with those statements. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that that's sort of really where that question, the can climate change be solved within existing relations of production and power comes from. So for the folks who answer no to that, there's sort of a second question, or I guess at this point we're at a third question that I sort of use to divide folks out. And that is, is social change possible? Um, there are definitely folks who believe that wide-scale social change, for good or for ill, is, is not really possible in a sort of intentional, directed kind of way. And that's actually where I put doomers. Um, and I, I have doomer tendencies. I know I have doomer <laughs> tendencies. Um, we'll get to what I actually classify myself in is a few minutes. Um, I think doomers are really badly maligned, actually. There's not a lot of solid evidence in terms of what actually attracts people to the climate movement and causes them to take action. There was another recent study that came out about that one, actually, looking at a whole bunch of different interventions. Um, but I think doomers end up talking about risk 
in a way that attracts people's attention and says, oh, this is the thing I need to think about. I don't think that just because people have entry into the climate movement and into concerns about climate through Doomer sort of discourse, I don't think they stay there. I think their own other underlying characteristics determine where they fall in this framework. Um, so I have like, I have a tiny bit of a soft spot for doomers, I have to admit. You need um, someone on the street corner who's who's yelling the end is nigh, right? Like, if the end is nigh, they're right. it's like, useful. Hey, that's what's really, and like this probably reveals more about where I fall. Um, but like the fact is, is that much of the underlying analysis, I mean, I'm not seeing that in the past 30 years, while we have made much progress, we, we genuinely have, and we should never overlook the successes that we've had, uh, but, but we ain't done it. We're not close to having done it. Um, so once you get past the sort of like, like, no, so you sort of put the doomers over there because they don't think social change is possible. Then you get to the question, um, and this is a really important question because we're going to shove a group off here and then we're going to talk mostly about that group later. Um, and that is the, do you value the sanctity of all human life? Um, and the folks who say no to that, that's where eco-fascists go. Um, and it's really interesting. So part of what I've done with this framework is actually try and look at the pathways and vulnerability to eco-fascism because they absolutely use disinfo tactics. Um, and I am quite certain that oil companies will, at the same time, use that messaging to try and pull people in eventually. Um, so you have eco-fascists over here. We'll, we'll come back to them in a minute. But for the rest of us who say, of course, I value the sanctity of all human life, then I sort of divide it by, is, is there enough time? Uh, and for the folks who say yes, that's where I call climate justice optimists. Uh, and those are folks who think that, yep, we have to reform the system completely. Maybe they say we have to get rid of capitalism. Maybe their focus is on colonialism. Maybe they're looking at sort of a, another set of, of um, fundamental systems that they believe that we have to change. But they do believe that that we have enough time in order to do that work. I think that the, that group and the regulation subsidy optimists are fairly closely aligned. And I think that between them, they make up the bulk of the mainstream climate movement. Um, and then you have the other group, and this is, I have to admit, where I go. And I call that the sort of climate justice pessimist group. And those are the folks who are like, yes, we can have change. No, I don't think we have time to turn all of these systems around uh, at the speed necessary, but we maybe we could have done it 30 years ago, but we didn't. Um, and so now we're looking at some really, really serious consequences that are just absolutely heartbreaking to contemplate. So was that helpful at all? I think it's really helpful, especially as we're going to go on to talk about the different strands of disinformation um, and how they target. And yeah, really useful to see that you've carved out a couple of the, I guess, I, I say mimetic here, but not in like the funny meme sense, uh, but in the the initial meaning um like mimetic groups like eco-fascists or or doomers who almost have an outsized footprint in terms of how the climate movement is talked about uh compared to how the movement itself tends to operate even as like a disparate group and i think being able to see like having a divided by, and by questions like that that put really clear boundaries between them is, is really useful as well yeah and i think it's really important that people sort of understand their own 
perspective and where they are in this framework, because that really determines what you're vulnerable to. So I, for example, am in no way vulnerable to someone coming and telling me about how great geoengineering is. Um, anyone who comes up to me and starts talking about the awesomeness of geoengineering is simply wasting their time. But I could probably be taken in by someone who was telling me about um, some sort of terrible impact that's likely to happen in the near future. Like that is absolutely the sort of thing. I'm like, oh God, no, not anymore. But yep, I probably believe you. Uh, and I might be less likely to thoroughly fact check that than I would be that techno optimist talking about geoengineering. I'll spend all day researching about why geoengineering is terrible and building good arguments against it. Uh, I'm unlikely to spend that time trying to disprove the idea of a particular climate impact happening. What about really efficient semiconductors? Is that something that would... Um... I literally have no idea of what you're talking about. <laughs> it's another one of these like technological solutions to the energy um, crisis, which drops every two or three years. Yeah, um, I see. Like, I sort of see stuff like that. And like, sometimes I save it. Actually, I do have files with this stuff. And I just sort of drop it in my like techno optimist folder. And then I only look at it when I absolutely have to. In terms of, um, I guess, the way that people using disinformation see it, how do you think they would use a similar framework to this? I mean, it would be useful. Or do you think it's more a, we can just pull out whatever we want and we'll get some people with it? I think there are many different actors in this space and they use many different approaches and tactics. Wow, um, terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I would assume that folks who are doing this on a, a sort of corporate basis, they do. I mean, this is how marketing folks work, right? They design sort of groups of people and they put them in, you know, they, they put you in the group and then they develop targeting um, messaging that that targets specific groups. I don't know what they're actually using internally, um, but of, of course, like that's how they, they do marketing. I think that there are, are other groups involved in this space who are frankly more chaotic uh, and perhaps don't approach it with the same level of planning and sophistication. Because you've had this... Uh, this phrase within the discourse around disinformation in particular, uh, but just applied to the entirety of the media space, uh, which is from Steve Bannon, which is flood the zone with shit. Is that the kind of thing you're meaning when you're talking about a more chaotic approach? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think flooding the zone is something that has been exercised in the climate online climate discourse in particular for a very long time. Um, I think going back as far as blog comments, I can remember seeing that sort of thing happening back in the day. And I think even now we see it on Twitter. So when you have very like reasonable, serious climate discussions happening on Twitter, if you scroll down, there are going to be um, people who are, or I assume that there are people and not bots. There's a human being somewhere behind this with intentionality. Um, posting all kinds of nonsense in the comments. And of course, now with the uh, $8 a month blue checks, you don't even need to scroll down very far. Those replies will be put right up to the top. That's how you know it's not just natural engagement, eh? Hey? Mm. Yeah, um, right? Not that we needed any more evidence. Uh, yeah, I think all of us and much of our audience as well, if you've involved in, uh, been involved in left or progressive spaces uh, in social media, uh, the coordination is very clear because a lot of it looks like they're typing of a script. 
Yes, and you will often see it's clear that they're working from a script. Um, and, and that's what's being shared. There has been some incredible work within the climbing climate movement to debunk a lot of this. Um, they have had really successful debunking websites, every single one of which has just flown out of my head in terms of the names. So sorry. Um, but the point, though, is that these um, sort of attempts to do fact-based debunking are really, really well-developed. They've been probably not as well funded as they would like to be, but well enough funded. So it's it's pretty clear though, that that kind of debunking has a very important place to play in the ecosystem and making sure that good factual information is available, but it's also not sufficient. I guess maybe it's a good point to segue into what might be sufficient or, or what kind of tools or apparatus or I, I don't know systems we can use to to try and push back on this because especially when we're talking about flood the zone tactics or the more chaotic approaches you know big corporates can obviously do a lot at scale um, they can be pretty targeted and intentional about it but there's something about the way that the more i'm going to say the more pure kind of disinfo approach where they can just just say whatever the fuck they want. It's it can be done at a much larger scale. It can be done cheaper, um, and for whatever reason, it has uh, it can have more of an impact on the individual. Because um, that's mostly if you're talking social media, that's mostly who's being engaged with. Does this all just come out of an, a situation or a scenario where everything's just been devolved so far to individual decision making? that they don't even need to target systems anymore? I think we get back to the, there are multiple actors in this space taking different approaches issue. Um, I think that if your goal is to flood the zone, then you, you don't really need to get too specialized about who you're targeting, right? That's the nature of that approach. But I think that climate disinformation is substantially more sophisticated than that. Like, I think that's the sort of bottom level of it. I think that the more advanced levels come up when you get into things like the astroturfing groups. I know, uh, so I used to live in the United States and I remember one morning when I was working on my book, so it would have been like 2013 or so, we woke up one morning and the entire small town had been flooded with clean coal yard signs as if overnight we had all suddenly developed a commitment to clean coal and we weren't even in a coal mining place. Um, so I think that those kinds of tactics are incredibly powerful. I also think that the sort of work that goes into framing, so the stuff that comes out of think tanks uh, and the stuff that ends up getting put into places like the Wall Street Journal, for example, that's where the really powerful climate disinfo stuff comes from. Uh, and that's where the narratives get determined. And that's also where the boundaries of the conversation, that, that work on boundary setting happens. And I think boundary setting and climate is really important because that gets into the approach around um, the sort of techno-optimist and the, the regulation subsidy-optimist people. Uh, if, in fact you are confining your options about climate and the things that you can do to things that can be produced within our current political system as it now stands, 
you're setting some real tight boundaries around what isn't isn't acceptable and what isn't isn't a legitimate uh, addition to that conversation. This kind of gets back into that um, Tina or there is no alternative kind of thinking as regards um, political decision makers, right? So there's enough of a disconnect from the electorate that even, you know, you're saying earlier in the in the discussion um, that most people believe that climate change is going to happen or is happening and is going to be bad. But if you have significant control or ability to influence the decision makers who have their hands on the levers of power and can change the direction of those institutions, then it doesn't matter what the people at large uh, well, exactly. tend to believe. Um, and I think that what's interesting about that study is it said 85% believe in climate change. It didn't say they know it's going to be bad. And I think that's one of the areas where uh, more contemporary sort of narratives really sort of start to take shape. Um, if, in fact, you do believe in climate change, that doesn't necessarily mean that you understand the implications of it um, or that you fully understand what the set of risks that we're actually facing are. It's entirely possible to believe in climate change as a human-caused event and not believe that the consequences of it are serious enough to warrant changing the way that we sort of organize ourselves socially and, and politically, actually. It's that um, pay-in, right, that uh, you know the climate uh, crisis has reached you and you're you're the one filming it um, on your mobile phone. So that's actually really, like, I'm, I'm really glad you actually brought that up because I think it's really worth questioning that. Um, like, I think it's a great saying, probably said it myself or shared it online. I really like it. But so Dana Fisher has a new book out called Saving Ourselves that I actually finished today. And it's a really, really, really great book. Um, like it is a... A, a genuinely important contribution to the climate movement. But one of the things that she talks about is she calls herself an apocalyptic optimist. And she believes that in order to get what she calls an anthro shift, people are going to have to experience climate risks uh, more acutely than they currently do. So essentially she thinks things will have to get bad like they did with COVID. That's the example she uses in order for mass scale change to begin to happen. And the sort of question that I bring to that and the thing that I worry about terribly is that that assumes that they know things are bad because of climate change. So I lost my house um, last year. We were in the Auckland floods. Um, it took a while for us to lose our house because it was an intersection of, of course, the house having flooded and terrible landlord and policies around that. Um, but nonetheless, I think that the experience of climate risk for lots of people is going to be like mine, where it's like, mm -hmm. so climate change impacted the storm that caused my house to flood, but then I really lost my house because we have some bad housing policy in New Zealand. So things are going to be complicated in terms of causation. And not only that, there are already fairly regular disinformation campaigns that make attribution a specific point of disinfo narratives. So even as risk increases, the thing that I worry about is people won't understand or identify climate risk as the cause of um, whatever 
either the risk that they're afraid of or the risk that's been realized for them. Yeah, and I think we've seen like quite a bit of that play out uh, among people who are members of groups who are going to be directly impacted, right? And maybe Byron, you can speak to that a bit in regards to Groundswell, who are who were ah they're still kind of around, uh, but not so prominent in the New Zealand mm-hmm. landscape. But ostensibly, uh, farmers or people working in agri- in the agriculture industry. Yeah, so you can really see how some of those people are really susceptible to this disinformation because if their livelihoods depend on economic activity which is worsening greenhouse gas emissions, then if it can be if they can be convinced that actually no, the the government is wrong, the science is wrong, um, then they can just go on doing farming as as they do now without having to change it. And I think um, we have seen, for the most part, I think agriculture really starting to at least acknowledge that climate change is happening. I think they're still, um, you know, dragging their feet on making changes, but the more mainstream organisations like, uh, you know, Federated Farmers will not be uh, promoting the kind of disinformation that we're seeing from Groundswell. And in fact, the, um, the tour that I mentioned earlier they did initially try and get uh, Beef and Lamb to sponsor this tour, and in the end they didn't, and they had to sort of self-fund it from, you know, from their own supporters. And I think that demonstrates that some of the some of the main organisations are not wanting to get involved in in this sort of stuff. But there's a sizable proportion of farmers who are willing to get involved with something like Groundswell and be promoting this disinformation out there. And I, and I think that that's, that's something that's probably going to be around for a while and possibly something that, even though they've died down, that, that we might end up hearing more of, if um, particularly if our current government or if we get a changing government and if they try and bring in more more regulations around methane emissions or herd sizes or um, all these sorts of things. Why do you think they see that stuff as a threat when it's probably, I'm pretty sure, it's becoming more clear that, you know, their fields are going to get flooded out um, mm. or, you know, they're going to have uh, bushfires and and smoke impacting their, their livestock and, and things like that, which, uh, I don't know, seem to me to be more of a direct threat. But they can they can place the blame for those things on, on people overseas. Um, and I think this is some of the change we see from outright denial that climate change is happening, but shifting to a denial that we need to do anything about it and the argument we hear so often in this country is that we are only we're only responsible for a very small amount of emissions so what we do is not relevant to the grand scheme of things so um, if farmers are affected by climate change that's the fault of uh, the us china india and the emissions in these countries and therefore we shouldn't um sacrifice our economic power by making any changes here which you know is not not a position i agree with in case that isn't obvious um but so i think i think that we can have this acknowledgement that yes there will be you know climate change caused natural disasters that will impact farming in this country um and then at the same time there'll be this argument that it's not necessary for our not necessary for our farmers to change the way they do farming in order to mitigate um, climate change. For groups like uh, Groundswell, how how does something like that come in, come into being? Like it's it seems like sometimes very clear where a a corporate lobby group comes from, 
and you can go, okay, look, these this is actually BP, right? Um, but for astroturf organizations, and I know Groundswell, I'm thinking of the right one, um, does have some of those kind of more astroturf-like, I was going to say symptoms, but characteristics. But there's this real like focus on trying to claim that it is a, a natural occurrence, right? Or like it's just popped up out of the discontent of, of farmers. Yeah, and I think there's arguably some some truth to that. Like I say, the the more mainstream organisations like Federated Farmers, you know, Beef and Lamb New Zealand, are not um, not dirtying their hands with the the same kind of disinformation. Whereas you know, a group of you know individual producers who have got together as groundswell rather than through their industry bodies are pushing this. And you know, are there perhaps some you know some um, larger economic interests pushing that? possibly but i mean it's equally likely that it is just um you know a group of individual farmers who see a threat to their livelihoods from from these regulations that have banded together and then i think they you know the influence on groundswell um is coming from other areas of disinformation as well there there's a group i've written about which um are now defunct but um one of the groups that came out of the Advanced New Zealand Party after they um, failed to enter Parliament in the 2020 election was uh, one called Agriculture Action Group. And they they had, a, um, I think, a significant influence on Groundswell in the lead-up to the hell of a protest event. And they were getting in there with, uh, you know, not just climate change disinformation, but with all sorts of, you know, sovereign citizen kind of stuff. And so I think, um, you know, seeing it purely, purely as, you know, uh, the economic anxiety of of farmers, you know, it's probably oversimplifying it a bit because I think there is there's other influences there within groundswell as well. Where would a, a group like that fit within a disinfo framework, Mandy? I think that in terms of where in terms of where that sort of group and that kind of organizing would fit in that is sort of the part that's really devoted unfortunately to sowing division um and creating chaos within our communities right i mean these are fundamentally fascistic movements they are movements that are designed to pull people in through you know they use sort of irony and humor and they really pull people into these sort of hate-based groups who maybe they don't even realize that is sort of what rests at the core of the group, right? They don't have that sort of negative, these are bad people feeling as people are pulled in. It's not until you sort of start moving deeper and deeper that that, that kind of perspective and understanding really starts to become clear. And by then people are often in too deep. Um, I think that groups like that will often use climate discourse as a sort of um, way to pull people in because there are plenty of people who legitimately have a lot to be concerned about when you're thinking about the kinds of changes that we need to make. So people have some vulnerabilities there and they exploit those vulnerabilities to pull people in. And what unfortunately happens is that as they're able to do that and as they're able to build their movements and become more successful, eventually you end up with them in power. And once you end up with them in power, the ability to address really important and legitimate social concerns like climate change, 
really just evaporates. Um, and you also end up with people who aren't super good at governing, right? Like they're not really interested in the business of running a country. Um, sometimes they're interested in the business of business. Um, sometimes they have completely other um, sort of motivations and goals. So you end up with not just like, they don't think that important parts of government should be happening, but also they're not super good at running the parts of government that they're in charge of. So I see it as a real risk. The other risk that I see is once you end up with these sorts of folks in power, what happens is that social activism in a lot of ways relies on shaming the government um, and causing the government to really go into legitimation crises. And the fact of the matter is, is that those kinds of authoritarian governments can't be um, moved through a legitimation crisis because they don't particularly care about legitimacy. That's simply not on the sort of docket of things that they care about. Uh, so it ends up becoming much, much harder to use organizing and social movement tactics in order to get change through the existing system. Right. And yeah, okay. That sounds bad. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm right. Like I'm 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 really not the most chipper person in the world. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. Look, we haven't had Bronco on the podcast for a while, and he always did the the climate pessimism while I try to hold up the other side. Uh so it's it's good to have a uh I'm not gonna say a dose of reality, because I think we're generally pretty clear about um climate science on the podcast, but at least a even a dose of pessimism, pessimism, I think, it can be really useful for, for some of the stuff and for peeling back some of the frameworks and intents of the people who are, who are looking to get power using this rhetoric, right? It's really interesting to me, you know, when we've talked about a, a wide range of different actors who are, who are in this space um, using disinfo in different ways and uh, different types of disinfo. Uh, to the extent that you can't really tell at this point in our society, just prima facie, who is acting in coordination um, and who just uses the same tactics because it's kind of open source at this point. Um, I mean, that's, that's the sort of power, unfortunately, of disinformation um, is that people will spread it themselves, right? So the way that we think about and talk about disinformation at Toa now is we tend to focus on disinformation as narratives that are intentionally inserted into the discourse um, for usually like a, a negative reason, right? They're, they're there to sow division. Um, they're there to create sort of chaos and harm. And then once they start spreading, we'll talk about them as misinformation once they're organically and innocently spreading. Uh, and that that transition, it turns out, isn't actually that hard. Um, if you understand people's worldviews, if you understand what kind of disinformation they're vulnerable to, it it's not that hard to get people to share information, right? We're social. It's what we do. We talk to each other. Um, and when we learn something that we think is important, when we learn something that sort of builds up our internal worldview and makes us feel like we're right, uh, we share it even more and we spread it around to all of our friends because uh, that's what we do. And like, that's that's not a bad thing. We should keep sharing information, um, but it's a vulnerability that humans have. Yeah, and especially when it leads to people organizing around 
that misinformation, right? Um, yeah, exactly. But I mean, what are people going to do with that kind of information other than organize around it? I mean, if I believe the set of beliefs that a lot of these folks who have been taken in through these campaigns have, heck yeah, I'd be organizing my community. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize if if we're going to effectively counter it, to recognize that these are not people who are behaving in an irrational or illogical way. They're acting on a set of beliefs that are incorrect. Um, but within that framework, by and large, people are behaving with, with some level of internal coherence. Not all of them. That is absolutely the case that it's not 100%. Um, but it's 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 more of them than I think we give them credit for in discourse sometimes. I think this is one of the big struggles, um, I guess, from the from the left of center towards the further left um, has been, ah, but maybe it's like a, a kind of centrist or, or liberal uh, reflex as much as anything. It's just call these people insane or just say they're um, divisive or uh, they're just trying to tear everything down without seeking to understand why a group is doing this, nor to acknowledge that the instinct to organize around a crisis is actually a good instinct. Um, yeah. I think that's a really fair critique. Um, the other thing that I would add to that, and this has been very much the case with climate science, but I think they've gotten better at it, is a sort of scientism where it's like science is right and science is always right and we must respect the science. Um, Science is a process. It's it's a way that we decide what is and, and isn't true. Um, it's not something that we should be sort of building up necessarily as a thing to sort of respect as an arbiter of truth outside of the way in which the process itself is an arbiter of truth. And I worry that with climate discourse, sometimes we really, more so in the past than now, we've gotten a lot better at it. Uh, we will sometimes overemphasize that and overfocus on arguing over what are, in fact, extraordinarily minor uh, sort of points of science fact, when what we really need to be discussing is how we can manage to build power to overcome the power of the fossil fuel interests uh, so that we can do what we can to make as many of us as possible come through what's coming at us and what we're experiencing now. Um, it's healthy and it's sort of with as much flourishing as possible. Any any hints? Oh, yeah. No, I've, I've actually solved all of this. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, actually, like, in terms of the disinformation piece, I do have useful things to say there. Um, so we're working at Toha Toha. I don't know if you're sort of familiar with our previous work, but we've been working on dis and misinformation for a good long while now. I started developing our program actually in 2019. Um, and we oh, ran before it was a boom industry. Yeah, before it was a boom industry. Like we've been in it for a while. Um, and the reason that I actually got into it, so we used to be the Creative Commons chapter for New Zealand. And I was going into all kinds of places, mainly libraries and schools. And I was talking about how to find licensed, um, like Creative Commons licensed and other sorts of open materials that could be freely shared in an educational context. And what I realized in the course of doing that was huh. that people needed a lot of support in terms of information literacy, um, even professionals. The way that we were teaching people information literacy uh, and the skills that they were coming to me with were not 
really meeting the needs of the current moment, which is how we sort of got into that. Um, so once we sort of started looking at that, then COVID happened and it became um, quite the little boom industry there for a little bit. I think it's faded now, um, but it, it had a real moment. And during that moment, we were able to deliver a program that I'm incredibly proud of called A Bit Sus. Um, we were able to partner with Slanda, the School Librarians of New Zealand. And what we did is we did professional development with them. And we taught evidence-based counter disinformation tactics. So the bulk of what we teach is lateral reading, which is a way of fact-checking information. It's been sort of developed by the Stanford History Education Group. So what we would really teach is the ability to fact check information. And it doesn't necessarily help with people who are deep within a disinformation fed worldview. That's not really the target here. The target here is ordinary folks who have a more mainstream worldview and want to understand what is true and what isn't true. So we would teach them uh, lateral reading and the skills associated with that. Uh, and then we also would teach inoculation theory. So we taught how to do effective pre-bunking at the community institution level. And what pre-bunking is, is warning people ahead of time when there's bad information circulating. Uh, it's actually, I think, really important. Um, schools have always used it at some level. Uh, if you've ever had a young person in school, you have definitely gotten an occasional email from the principal or another administrator about a rumor that's circulating around the school. This is the same kind of approach. And both lateral reading and inoculation theory have reasonably robust evidences around them. So that's what we teach. Uh, and we are reasonably confident um, that we can apply these to climate as well, actually. So what we're really looking at doing is offering what we are doing is offering workshops that anyone can take. It's not just for sort of librarians or teachers. We're looking for a, a broader group of folks here, folks from the health community, folks who are engaged in climate activism, folks from the policy community to have an opportunity to come and join us. And we're going to look at both the theoretical sort of and, and historical context for climate disinformation as well as what the literature tells us about effective um, countering it. So the goal is to get people by the end of the class to have developed their own um, climate counter disinformation action plan that they can apply in their own environment and their own sort of context. Fantastic. Thank you. We're very excited. <laughs> How long does it take to create something like that? You know, that's a really good question. So, um, I wrote my book 10 years ago. Oh, okay. So we're talking like a whole pipeline here. Yeah. Like I, so I wrote my book 10 years ago and I wrote the book and um, I'd spent a lot of time thinking about climate change and a lot of time learning about climate change. And uh, so I picked up my family. We moved to New Zealand. Um, those are not unrelated situations. Um, though my husband got laid off and thanks to his union, got a good severance deal. So we had some funds available. Um, but uh, I, after that, I took a break from climate, but I've sort of had cooking in the back of my head. The book that I wrote was on climate change in libraries and what librarians could do in order to support really good climate action. And 
at the time when I wrote the book, I focused essentially on what you can do within your library. And then I had sort of a section on advocacy and activism. And I think I maybe had three paragraphs on information literacy. Uh, but since then, I've sort of had cooking in the back of my head that really information literacy is a key part of how we can ensure that we can at the very least have a functional climate movement and hopefully then have the ability to build the power to make the change that we need. So on some level, I've been working on it for 10 years. Um, <laughs> when I sat down to actually write the syllabus, I think it was about half an hour. And then I was like, oh, yeah, nope, this is what's been in my head. Yeah, yeah. I think um, many of us in this space have, have had that horrible realization. Well, horrible, maybe. No, sometimes it feels like quite bleak. Like, oh, wait, this could have happened earlier. Yeah. how I felt about it in the past. I mean, I think I definitely had some anger to work through in terms of <laughs> why, like, why was I learning about this when I was in the fifth grade and yeah. now I'm an adult with children and what, no one did anything? Except they did do things and they did important things, but the things aren't enough. We need to do more. Um, but yeah, I, I had a, a, and I still do have a lot of, emotions and a lot of I mean in a sense sadness I love the natural world um I don't love the human world at the moment and the way in which we're organized and the way in which we've maldistributed power and resources and I sort of always hold out hope that whatever happens we can come out the other end better and we can come out the other end with the kind of societies that we all deserve yeah I, I guess like that one of those dividing lines is what are we coming out the other end of right Yep. And that's <laughs> where I get real sad. Baron, in terms of um, kind of disinformation communities or, or uh, groups that have organized around this stuff, do you think there is an impact on, uh, a significant impact on the wider uh, kind of New Zealand populace? Uh, and what do you see as being like a, a key role of uh, information literacy or inoculation in terms of some of these like either astroturfing or otherwise described groups? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's definitely an impact. Um, when you've got sort of these media media organisations now like Reality Check Radio and like Counterspin Media promoting this disinformation and um, something I was thinking about earlier was how... New Zealand Herald, News Hub. <laughs> when, uh, when Counterspin, uh, sorry, when Groundswell had their, their hell of a protest event, you know, Counterspin did a whole special episode about it and had had some of the organisers on and they had the, um, you know, the Grey District Mayor on the show and that, you know, potentially brought, brought in more of an audience for them and then um, some of these people, I think, weren't fully aware of what they've got themselves into by going on Counterspin because they then, you know, after after these guests, they then had people from Agriculture Action Group where they, you know, went deeper down the rabbit hole in terms of climate disinformation. Um, but you see um, some of the some of the speeches given by the organisers at that event as well showed that they'd been impacted by disinformation beyond what they were hearing from within Groundswell, the things that were coming from elsewhere. Um, and then you see through something like that event, more of an influence on, you know, on mainstream political parties who may want the the votes of people in in these kind of rural communities where where Groundswell has impact. And then among the the wider population, you get, 
you know, at least this idea that there's a debate going on, and that's mm-hmm. the that's the whole flood the zone thing. You know, you, you don't necessarily have to convince everyone that your position is the correct one. You just have to convince enough people that there's a debate going on, and then there's a controversy. You know, then, then it's then a, yeah, there's a controversy, and then it's murky because because the reality is people aren't going to be going and just fact checking everything they hear just because they they don't have the time to do it. And I think that that's part of where information literacy comes in because yeah we're not going to try and find a fact you can website for every every fact that we encounter in every day which is a lot when you're you know scrolling social media and getting your news up headline updates and your podcasts and everything um but if you've got a bit of information literacy you might be able to at least have an idea of what is likely to be something that you want to just think about before you retweet or before you share or what you maybe actually want to dig into deeper and then maybe put out your own information um, um, countering that, um, which, yeah, again, is, is a lot of work, but there'd be some times where that might be something that you feel is necessary to do if you if you um, see something that is having you know, quite a negative impact. I, I, I guess I say that because that's a lot of what I've done <laughs> activism-wise over the last few years. It's not necessarily for everybody, but at least if everybody has that level of literacy, you know, doing that may not even be that necessary because disinformation and misinformation wouldn't spread as much as it has, as much as it does currently. Where can one learn to do this, Mandy? Well, you could certainly sign up for our course, please. Um, <laughs> So you can sign up on our website for it. Um, it's toatoha.org.nz. That's T-O-H-A-T-O-H-A.org.nz. And if everyone, like, it's a one person at a time website. So, like, like wait in line. Don't just all jump on at once because uh, it will crash. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that I have found incredibly frustrating about working in the area of mis- and disinformation is how little attention has gone to actually teaching the skills that communities need in order to function in today's information environment. Well, this is um, one of the things very early on, which was very clear is going to become a problem um, when disinformation became a bit buzzwordy, being used by people with a lot of institutional power, you know, in politics and media um, and NGOs, where there was no framework being given to people to understand what was happening. And you're like, okay, well, your opponents are just going to say this exact same thing now. Um, and that's atten- like essentially exactly what's happened. Like David Seymour was just calling something disinfo just the other week. You know, <laughs> you know, like everyone's using this term now just to mean the thing I don't like. Absolutely. And you see that within the climate movement itself as well. Um, that's part of why that framework that I talked about earlier one of the things that I would like to be able to do is to help people to understand where others who are sincere and genuine actors within the climate movement are coming from, so that when we're having conversations, we can leave talking about disinfo for the stuff that the fossil fuel companies and other bad actors are doing. Um, and when we're dealing with someone who is um, of a group that is is not one that shares our worldview, but that is not for example, ecofash, um, we can talk to them with a little bit more respect. Um, I think in particular, the regulation subsidy optimists and the climate justice optimists, like we should be able to work together. There are definitely real, real world policy gains to be made. And it is worth working with that group to make those gains. 
Um, and I think the same can be said probably for doomers. Like, yep, doomers are definitely not my particular flavor. However, they can serve a really important role in engaging people and sort of finding entry into the movement, particularly into the more um, direct action focused parts of the climate movement, which given where things are, of course, there's going to be a strong direct action part of the movement. And honestly, there probably needs to be. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. It was really thank great you. to see you again, Kyle. You always um, start our conversations talking about how much of a pessimist you are about this stuff. I always feel like, well, it's given me something like to not just think about, but to apply. Um, so you're actually feeding my optimism uh, around what's possible. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say as an optimist myself, certainly not as a doomer. Um, I'm glad I'm able to feed your optimism and I hope that you will use that to do something like productive on climate. Like if we can just <laughs> manage to get, uh, you know, everyone pulling in the same direction really, really quickly, it'll all be fine. Yeah. 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 I'm sure. I'm sure we can figure it out somehow. Um, no, I mean, cause optimism, optimism also has its risks, right? Like it, there's a reason that it also sits within that framework. But we won't go into that in further detail. Uh, you should go and learn about that uh, in this course that Toa are running. Um, it will <laughs> not surprise folks to know that under the current government, we are, are not anticipating any additional funding. So please <laughs> sign up for our course. Um, and we will work really, really hard to develop a really solid evidence-based practical plan uh, for people to use in their context to try and fight climate disinformation. Fantastic. Now, I believe there is a cost uh, to this course, um, just for people who are, who are rushing to sign up. But you also have a a buy a seat option for for bigger organizations and institutions who believe that you know people should be going on this course uh, and create space uh, for people who might not have the money to to attend. Um, and individuals actually. So our our sponsors so far have been individuals, um, ah. just the most amazing people. So yeah, so it costs 400 New Zealand dollars to register. Uh, we do have a $200 option for unwaged and students. Uh, and the way it works is you can either just buy a seat for yourself or you can sponsor a seat. And we're just matching people sort of by, by timestamp. So it's first come, first served. Um, but if you don't have time yourself, if you know, uh, a class isn't really your thing. Um, you can go ahead and and buy a seat for someone else so that someone whose thing it is, but who doesn't have money is able to do it. Um, and I should say too, it's not a, a lot of online classes are sort of pre-recorded lectures and modules you click through. This is not that. Um, we do send out a 20 minute pre-recorded lecture that we record ahead of time, um, like usually on the day I send it. And then we do 90 minutes together in a Zoom room, um, doing hands-on activities, talking with guest lecturers, um, and, and having some, what I hope will be really meaty, uh, great discussions. All right. So if you're in that space, uh, or if you're interested in it, go and sign up, please. I think it can be so much more understanding of how these spaces are operating. Um, and without the understanding, there's no, you know, even if you are an optimist, you can't do anything about it. Uh, if you if you don't know what you're working with. So go sign up. Thank you again uh, to Mandy from Toto and Byron Clark from publishing a book last year uh, about the far right. <laughs> yeah, do, do you, um, do we say you're from Toto as well, if you're working on this? I suppose so for this, uh, yeah. 
Is this cool? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again, uh, both of you, for joining us. Uh, thank you to our audience for listening. If you found something useful in here, if you want to, uh, if you think that framework's been a really useful way to think about uh, the way people approach climate, if you think some of these discussions about how disinformation works uh, within this space uh, have been a useful way to consider how to fight back against it, share this podcast. Let people know that there is this information out there. Go over to the Toa website. I'll chuck it in the summary um, and you can click through and, and look at what they have there as well. And if you want to, you can sign up for their course. That's been another midweek episode of One of 200. We'll hopefully catch you on the weekend for our current events. We'll see you then. If our fences are denied Live in a pointless life But I'm learning all your lessons Fucking politics is no distinction Words apart now It's paid with good intentions And I'll admit that I'm At a loss for what to say Amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're on the road to hell